Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. church. So good to see you this morning. So good to hear your voices as we sing praise to our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, to see you, to, um, to be among you. Um, as you turn to 2 Corinthians 9, being the teacher that I am, I do have a question for you. Start with the question. What is worship is my question. After all, this is a worship service. We gather together to worship, but I wonder if put to it, how would we define worship? Maybe even as you start to try to define it there in your seats, it's like it's not as easy to define as you might think. Perhaps we, the first thing that comes to mind is singing. We worship through singing. And I don't think you would be wrong in that. But perhaps there's more to it than just singing. In fact, if you look through your bulletin, you'll see there is various times in our service together where we talk about worship. Worship through song. Worship through giving. Worship through the word, which we're doing right now. And I wonder if we've ever actually thought about it and read it, why we put that word worship and that phrase, worship through giving, there. Perhaps we should say it's a time of giving instead. Do we insert that word there to make it seem more pious and more holy? Or do we actually pause and consider that our giving truly is an act of worship, as much as what we sing? Is our giving an afterthought to our worship service, or... Is it as central as these other aspects of our time together each week? So you have your definition for worship in your mind right now, I hope. Donald Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, defines worship this way. Focusing on and then responding to God. I'll say that again. Worship is focusing on and then responding to God. At its root, the word worship is to acknowledge the worth of something or someone. We almost hear it in that word worship. What is worthy? We worship what we value, what we appreciate. What we find in the Bible is that worship is ascribing the proper worth to God, to magnify his worthiness of praise, 
or better yet, to approach and address God as he is worthy. As Christians, we behold the unsurpassed infinite worth of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ in the Bible. We behold this because the Holy Spirit has opened our spiritual eyes to behold his glory as we read his word, as we hear his word preached, and then we respond to it. Much as the 24 elders around the throne in Revelation responded, if you recall, they fell down before God, they cast their thrones before his throne, and they cried out, worthy are you, O Lord and God. So we respond as we focus on God in our songs, in our prayers, and yes, I believe in our giving as well. For we find the worth of Christ far surpasses anything that we own or possess. And I assert that our giving, not just in the form of monetary giving on a Sunday morning, but our giving in every aspect of our lives is the truest representation of how deserving of worth, how deserving of worship we feel God truly is. Our giving is more than what we put into the offering plate on a Sunday morning, but it's not less. Perhaps you can feel yourself tensing up at this moment. The way that I tense up when I see someone at a four-way stop asking for donations. I think, can I go a different way here? Or in front of the grocery store asking for a fundraiser. And I think, do I really need what I'm going to get here at Target? In fact, this might seem like the least Christian topic to address. In polite company and certainly in a worship service. Perhaps you feel as, I'm, as if I'm about to peddle God's word, to fleece you, to swindle you, like so many false preachers of God's word who require monetary gifts in order to unlock God's blessing in your life so that you might receive health and wealth and prosperity. And if I were in your seat and I've tried to put myself there, I would probably be feeling some of those same things, thinking some of those same thoughts. But let us heed the instruction that we find in God's word to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let us instead put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. For what we are about to hear from God's word is just that, God's word, not my own. And the purpose of what I'm about to preach on is not chiefly about money or offerings or giving, but about the state of our souls. What I desire for you and for me is not earthly health and wealth and prosperity, but eternal health and wealth and prosperity. So let us receive with humility, with meekness, the implanted word, God's word is like a mirror. It reveals exactly who we are, not who we imagine ourselves to be, who we would like ourselves to be. But we are measured against God's word as a plumb line. His word is unchanging, eternal, and true. So let us seek together and look into his perfect law, the law of liberty, with resolve not to just be hearers of his word, to be doers who act that we might be blessed in our doing.
Let's stand together, church, as we read God's word. I love reverence and honor for it. 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, your word creates and your spirit gives life. May your word by your spirit create and bring life to your people this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. You don't have an outline in your bulletin, so I'm going to give it to you all right now, and then you can fill it in if that is helpful to you. And then if I don't get to this, you can hold me accountable. You said you were going to talk about this, and you didn't. We have three major points here this morning. We worship God through our giving, first of all, by magnifying God's generosity. We worship God through our giving by, first of all, magnifying God's generosity. Secondly, by supporting the ministry of the gospel. So we worship God through our giving by magnifying God's generosity. We worship God through our giving by supporting the ministry of the gospel. And lastly, we worship God through our giving for the good of our hearts. We worship God through our giving for the good of our hearts. Now, what I'm about to say is not all that could be said on. I'm sure there's going to be some that I missed, some texts that weren't brought here, but I trust what we do have here will be a sufficient start in a theology of giving that we need, or perhaps a reminder of why we give. And I trust that the Lord will multiply even what is said. The context of what we read in 2 Corinthians 9 is that there were poor uh, believers in the Jerusalem church. Paul was gathering collections there. If you go back to chapter 8, you see he references the Macedonian church. That would be the church in the area of Greece. 
the Philippian church, the Thessalonian church, the Berean church perhaps. And in this part of 2 Corinthians, we see that he is reminding the Corinthians to be ready so that when he comes to them, they can have this gift that they were going to be giving to the Corinthian church ready for them. But let's turn to our points here. We worship God through our giving by magnifying God's generosity. Perhaps you even saw this as we read through that text. Do we think often or much about God's generosity? God owns everything. We read in Psalm 24:1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. That pretty much covers it all. When God looks upon his creation, what does he say but mine? Every beast of the forest is his, the cattle on a thousand hills. He knows all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field and says, mine. The world in all its fullness, it is God's. But what does God do with all that he owns? The blessed God, the happy God, generously gives. And why does God generously give? Well, he's a good father, first of all, and a good father knows how to give good gifts to his children. But I would argue as well that he gives generously so that we might be gener generous givers to the praise of his glory. In fact, that's what we read beginning in verse 10, if you will follow along in the text with me there. We read there, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. So God is supplying seed to the sower, bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. I'll say that again. You will be enriched by God in every way. All of it's his. You're to be enriched so you might be generous in every way, which we read there, what's the result of this? It will produce thanksgiving to God. For this ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing and many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and, all, and for all others. Verse 15, we read, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So the people are giving and the Lord is being praised. So what does this mean then for the money in our bank accounts, the cars that we drive, the homes that we live in, our time, our bodies? Are those the Lord's? Is that something over which he says, mine? To which the world bristles, to which many in this room this morning might bristle, how dare you tell me what to do? No one owns me. I am my own. This is my life, my money, my possessions, my time. And whether we would yell that with the top of our lungs or merely hold that truth quietly in our hearts, many are deceived into believing it is so. 
For isn't that how we often live our lives? How often do we pause to prayerfully, biblically, consider how the Lord would have us use our time, our money, our possessions, our affections in our lives? But Christian, we are not our own. We were bought with a price by the precious blood of Christ, so we glorify God. For the chief end of man is to glorify God and not ourselves. We read in Ephesians, in love God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In eternity past, God purposed that he would save us so that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace. So do we examine our lives and ask ourselves, is what I am doing right now to the praise of his glorious grace? As new creations in Christ, we image the generosity of God to us in Christ and we image the generosity of Christ himself. So we worship God through our giving by magnifying God's generosity. But that's not it. But that would be enough. I imagine you would agree with me. That would be enough. But we also worship God through our giving, not just to magnify his generosity, but also to support the ministry of the gospel and all that comes and flows out of the gospel. So that's our second point. We worship God through our giving by supporting the ministry of the gospel. We read this beginning in verse 12. For this ministry of this service, this giving, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So yes, it's overflowing to many thanksgivings, but we can't miss this. It's also supplying the needs of the saints. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of their submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution. So there is a confession of the gospel that comes from our mouths, and there is a confession of the gospel that comes through the generosity that flows from the gospel, that in fact proves the sincerity of the confession of our mouth. Go back, uh, if you will, in my Bible, it's one page, it may be a little bit more in yours, to 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8 to see this. In verse 7, we read, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This is the giving that we are talking about in chapter 9. So you see that you excel in this grace of, uh, this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So they say they have a love. This act of grace excelling in this is going to show that their love is genuine. The gospel transforms us to be generous with our possessions and to meet the needs of the ministry of the gospel. If you can recall back in Acts 2, we see this transformation take place at the beginning of the church. If you recall there, Peter is preaching the first post-resurrection sermon, the first uh, 
sermon of the risen Christ and what happens after he preaches the word of God, but that men and women are cut to the heart and they say, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized that you may be saved. So 3,000 repent. And then we sometimes miss this, perhaps, hopefully we don't. But as, after they repented, the next thing that we read there in verse 42 is that they then devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So we see this immediate change in their whole lifestyle, what was important to them. Apostles' teaching, fellowship with one another, breaking of bread, which I'd argue is the Lord's table, and the prayers. That ought to be the focus of our time, should it not, as a church. We read there, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and then this is what we read there. And all who believed were gathered together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, that's from Acts 2, beginning in around verse 42. But did you catch that? This is worship. They focused on God and the worth of God, and then they responded in their lives. It affected every aspect of their lives. They were generous with their time and their possessions. They were, in fact, selling their possessions and belongings as to provide to any who had need. In fact, we read in Acts 4, there was not a needy person among them. Would you imagine that? There would not be a needy person among them. And I would argue that's not just material needs. I would say it's spiritual needs among them. It says there as well, day by day they were attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad hearts. I think we receive our food with glad hearts. But their hearts were also generous and they were praising God. The true effect of the gospel does not turn us inward, but outward in generosity and upward in praise. So let's examine exactly how God has designed our giving to support the ministry of the gospel. There are three ways. I'll work our way uh, in concentric circles. That's a math term, concentric circles out. So we start at the heart of it, how we might support materially the ministry of the gospel. For at the center, at the heart of it, is the well, that's the wellspring out of which all other of the ministries flow. We can't go outward in, so we'll start inward and work our way outward. The first of three points here, how we will materially support the church, is by supporting those who proclaim the gospel. The pastors of the church. If you'd like to turn with me in 1 Corinthians 9 to see it there. We can see this explicitly. I'll give you some other references as well. So we want to be supporting the ministry of the gospel by supporting those who proclaim the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? 
is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? There it is at the end. If we have sown, so Paul here is talking about himself, the other apostles who are building these churches. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? In Galatians 6, 6, he writes, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Again, Galatians 6, 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Well, to whom is Paul referring? Perhaps it's just the apostles back in the early church. Well, who is the one who teaches? It is those who have sown spiritual things among them. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul puts it this way. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Again, 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, here we have it again, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So the church is to support those elders, those pastors who labor in preaching and teaching, those who sow and plant spiritual things among us. In fact, the Lord commands that we do this. It's not just a suggestion. If you go down to verse 14 in 1 Corinthians 9, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should, be, should get their living by the gospel. The laborer deserves his food. And notice that this is not limited to what we would commonly refer to as tithes and offerings on a Sunday morning. For what do we read in Galatians 6, 6? But we are to share all good things with the one who teaches. So the so-called tithe or offering may just be the beginning of our support for pastors, the pastors of our churches. And the question we ought to ask ourselves is this. How much do we treasure that which is sown among us? How much do we treasure the labor involved in preaching and teaching? The shepherd teachers are God's ordained gifts that we read about in Ephesians 4 to equip the saints. That's the church. That's all of us for the work of ministry, for building up of the body. Do we desire to grow in the unity of the faith? Do we desire to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God? Do we want to attain spiritual maturity and manhood? Do we want to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ himself? If that is our heart, if that is what we value, then we will value those who labor at preaching and teaching, those who devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. We will, in fact, give cheerfully and generously to support these ministries. But what else? As we work out of this gospel proclamation and teaching, we also support those um, within our families and within the church. These practical needs that we read about in 2 Corinthians 9. Men, in fact, are reminded in 1 Timothy 5, 8, they are to provide for their relatives, especially the members of their household. If you do not, you have denied the faith and are worse than unbelievers. Galatians 6.10 reminds us that we are to do good to everyone, but especially those of the household of faith. So we see 
in Acts 2, what we would probably, probably term a benevolence ministry. There were general needs that were being met. And we also read in places like Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 5, there are other ministries to those who are truly widows, those who have left all alone and set their hope on God. Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 5, if you want references there. So we are supporting those who preach the gospel. We are serving those we see on a regular basis. Third, we support those, uh, the needs of like-minded churches and ministries. That's what we read about in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians as well, Romans 15. Acts 11 is another good place to see this example. There was a famine that had besieged the church in Judea, and they were, other churches were supporting this church. That's why we consider and prayerfully consider the, uh, the missionaries that we support, for they are like-minded. They want to, they value the church, they value the local church, they value the pastors who are um, building up those churches, and so we support them. And now a little bit of the practical here, perhaps, although I would argue it's not practical, it's spiritual, but maybe practical, the question you may be asking, you've been waiting for this, how should we give? How much should we give? What does this look like? What, how is it laid out? I've never been taught this before. Maybe I've been taught it. I forgot it. What does the Bible say? So I have uh, a few principles here laid out in Scripture for our giving. The first I would say is, okay, I realize I should give to support the pastoral ministry of this church, those within the church, those who are supporting missionaries, but how should I give? What does this look like? The first I would say is that our giving is to be planned and disciplined. Planned and disciplined. I'll give you some quick references here. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. On the first day of the week, Paul says, put something aside as he may prosper. 2 Corinthians 9, 3 through 5, right before our passage, we read there that Paul wants them to be prepared in advance and to be willing. We should be as disciplined in our giving as we are disciplined in our Bible reading, in our prayer, in our gathering together. Giving is our practice, our habit, as much as these other disciplines are also our, our habits. How else should we give? What's another principle besides being um, planned and regular and disciplined? I would say it needs to be sacrificial. This answers the question, how much should we give? We're looking for an amount, right? We hear the term tithe thrown around a lot. That tithe refers to the Old Testament giving of a tenth. And so we might think, oh, yes. The Old Testament, Israel gave a tenth. The church is the new Israel. We should give a tenth. But uh, a few notes about that term tithe, which Kent Hughes describes in his book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man. If you actually go back and examine all the tithes, you'll see it's not just one tithe, but there actually are three tithes that Israel was commanded to give, which actually would total closer to 25% of their possessions. So I'll list them off quickly here. There are three tithes, the Lord's tithe, the festival tithe, and then there is a poor tithe, which was given every three years. Ten divided by three is about three. Round that up, about 25% every year. But it didn't stop there. Further, the people did not harvest to the edge of their fields all the grapes from their vineyards, thereby reducing their income and their resources. 
There were also what were referred to as grace givings. These are first fruit offerings given out of love for God, not yet knowing what would come after it. There were free will offerings as we read about in Exodus 36 this morning to build the tabernacle. So if we want to be consistent with the nation of Israel, we would probably start at 25% and not 10%. But what instruction do we have in the New Testament? Well, we've already described some of them. We've referenced some of those, but we would see in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, we are to put aside something as we prosper. We are to give according to our means. We read about in 2 Corinthians 8, according to what we have, not what we don't have. And we are to give out of our abundance at the present time. So something as we prosper, according to our means, according to what we have. Again, it's not a concrete number. I don't think it's meant to be a concrete number. Because I think that underneath the question of how much we should give is the question that we all think from time to time, which is, what is the minimum I can give in order to satisfy this requirement of giving and then move on with my life? What do I do to check that box? But the right question to ask is, how much can I give so that Jesus Christ looks more valuable to me than my money and my possessions? I'll say that again. The right question to ask is, how much can I give so that Jesus Christ looks more valuable to me than my money and my possessions? Unless we are sacrificing in our giving, that is, we are, not, we are not giving up possessions and activities we would otherwise do, I would say we are probably not giving enough. And why do I say that? If we're not giving up our possessions and activities we otherwise would, because that's exactly how the world gives, doesn't it? And do we look like the unbelievers for whom this world is their home? This is all they have. So, of course, they're going to want to get as much as they can. And they'll give because it looks good to give. Maybe they want to give, but not to the point where it hurts. But Christians, we ought to live as if our home, our eternal abode is not here but yet to come. And I fear this in my own heart as I fear it for many of us, that we are so comfortable here in our lives that if the Lord would return, even right now, that we would be disappointed because we're having such a good time here. This is our home. This is what we enjoy. Don't take me away now. Just give me, like my kids, give me five more minutes. Those who follow Christ are called to deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. So what should our giving look like? I think a prime example from the Old Testament, if we want an example from the Old Testament, would be Exodus 36, which we read. And how did they give? They gave willingly as, the heart, as their heart moved them. So much so that Moses had to tell them to stop giving. Can you imagine that? Stop giving. Don't give anymore. So the people were restrained from bringing. I think that's a good start to asking how much we should give. Are you restrained from giving? The material they had given was sufficient for the work. Let's look at New Testament, 2 Corinthians uh, 8. Maybe that's too far in the past for us. Maybe it doesn't apply to us. Of course, this is also 2,000 years old, so maybe this doesn't apply to us as well, but... 
I would grant it probably does. 2 Corinthians 8, as a way we can think about our giving. Beginning in verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Again, here we see that this grace, this giving, was seen as from God through these people. For in severe tests of affliction, for their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their parts. I mean, just take that in. In severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty cause them to focus in on themselves and say, not now, when I get more money in the bank account, I will. No, it overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Four, verse three, they give according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. So yes, we give according to our means, but there is a sense in which we would give beyond our means because of the greater treasure that we see in heaven awaiting us. Verse 5, we can't miss this. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Let's not get this backwards, that we give and then we are somehow, then we give ourselves to the Lord. You will burn out. You will be um, discouraged. You will stop giving. Give yourself to the Lord first and then by the Lord's will to these ministries. So we should give planned and regularly, disciplined, we should give sacrificially, and maybe it goes without saying. I hate when teachers say it, it goes without saying. Well, they don't say it, but it doesn't go without saying. Give cheerfully, right? Back in 2 Corinthians 9, that's what we read. You, each one must give as he deci- has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the question as we get to our third point and as we begin to close here is, something that we ought to ask ourselves regularly, which is, what if we are not cheerful in our giving? I'm giving, but I'm giving without thought. I just write the check every Sunday. Or now I, I guess the computer does it now, right? It's, just, it's giving, it's giving, right? I'm just doing, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Well, what if I give reluctantly? It's like, ah, I don't really want to do this. Why is cheerfulness a requirement of our giving? Well, the first one may be pretty obvious. If we are not cheerful in our giving, that does not honor God at all. Because God gives generously to all without reproach. But a lack of cheerfulness in our giving or a lack of generous giving reveals perhaps that something has gone wrong in our hearts, which is our final point. So why do we worship God through our giving? Why do we focus on God and respond to him Yes, it's to magnify his giving. Yes, it's to support financially the church. Those things are true. But it's for the good of our own hearts. And this is the first time we probably should be thinking about ourselves. Often we want to think about ourselves being built up. Let's talk about me. But now we examine our hearts because our hearts are wayward and they wander. So what is at the heart of our giving and what does it say about our hearts? We can honor God with our lips, but our hearts can be far away. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 9, if you're no longer there. In verse 6, the point is this. Whoever 
sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So why would we be those who sow sparingly? Don't we want to reap bountifully, right? We invest money in the stock market, not so we get a little return, so we get a great return. So why would we so sparingly, knowing that we will not get much for our um, sowing there? Why would we give reluctantly or under compulsion and not eagerly and cheerfully? I think the reason why we wouldn't is because we don't believe verse 8, or we merely pay it lip service. We don't believe God is able to make all grace abound to us so that having all sufficiency and all things at all times, we may abound in every good work. The reference that Paul makes there in verse 9, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, is a reference to Psalm 112. There it talks about this man who deals generously, and it says there that he will never be moved. Actually, let's go there. We have time for this, I hope. Let's go to Psalm 112. I'll begin in verse 5, though. Psalm 112, beginning in verse 5. This is the psalm that Paul is referencing there in 2 Corinthians 9. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, for the righteousness, or for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. We are in verse 8. Until he looks on... In triumph on his adversaries, verse 9, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. So here we see it. This righteous one will never be moved. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm. Why is he generous? Why is his heart never moved? Why is he not afraid of bad news? In verse 7, his heart is firm. He is trusting in the Lord. And I would argue that is what we read about in 8, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 9. God, we trust that God is able to make all grace abound to us so that we're going to have all that we need. Do we fear bad news? Are we afraid? Are our hearts not firm or steady? What is the cure to this? Is not more money or more possessions more pleasure or security in this life. Those who set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, those who desire to be rich for security and for value and for worth, fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith 
and pierce themselves with many pangs. No, the cure to be a cheerful giver, to be the one who sows bountifully, to have steady and firm hearts is to trust in the Lord. Briefly, let's turn to Luke 12, and this is where we'll end today. Luke 12. And I encourage you to be good Marines and read this whole, <laughs> this whole chapter, beginning in verse uh, 13, but perhaps a place where we are familiar with but need to be reminded of. I'm going to skip all the way down, Luke 12, in verse 32. There Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Fear not. You go back up to 22. Why were they afraid? They're anxious about their life. They're anxious about what they're going to eat and their body, what they're going to put on. And he says, don't be anxious. Here, verse 32, fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So what? Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart, there will your heart be also. Do not be anxious, brother and sister. We have true material needs. I'm not denying that. But I would argue for most of us, our struggle is focusing too much on those material needs and not enough on our spiritual needs. Our struggle is being too stingy and not generous enough. Our struggle is not trusting in the Lord's provision. Let us calibrate our hearts to an eternal economy. How do we do this? And close. How do we, if this, is the, if this is where we find ourselves, how do we recalibrate so that we might be joyful givers? We might be those who sow bountifully that we might reap bountifully. By God's grace and through the means of the grace of his church, we focus on the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. I lied to you. 2 Corinthians 9, if you want to see it. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. This is the last place we're going to go. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9. What's the cure for this? It's not looking to ourselves. It's looking to God's inexpressible gift to us. Verse 9, For you know, Christian, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, richer than we'll ever be, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Focus on Christ. Focus on and remind yourself all that you've been given in him. The one who was rich and became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. 
how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? I pray, Lord, that you would plant this seed deep into our hearts, that you, the God of all grace, can and will make all grace abound in our lives so that we would have all sufficiency in all things at all times, that we may abound in every good work to the praise of your glorious grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.